This will be, I think, my most didactic sermon. And you know that because I don't usually use words like didactic. I try not to use jargon or terminology. I want words to be accessible and easily understood. But the title of this sermon and the concept we're tackling for today is Justification by Faith. And when we talk about the creeds which every Christian must know, you must know what justification by faith, what we've struggled for 2,000 years to gain an understanding of. You must have a clear understanding of that. So if someone asks you about your faith, I mean, if you don't know about some part of Christianity, there's tons, it's okay. But if somebody asks you what the core of it is, and it's justification by faith, and someone asks you, okay, well then what does that mean, justification by faith? You ought to have a clear understanding. I am laughing because there's just as likely a chance I'm going to muddle it up as to make it clear this afternoon. But we've prayed and I'm asking for God's grace. So when, when I say didactic, meaning a teaching, is that this sermon is based on the structure of an exam of sorts. So before you, in your sermon notes, you have six questions, which we're just going to question and answer. And I want it to be uh, responsive. I want you to think about them in, in each question as we go in turn, and I would like a, a, an answer, actually, as, as, a, as we ask them. And for those of you who just kind of want to peruse ahead, look at all six questions <laughs> and see, do, do you know the answers already to all six of those questions? Do you, is it six? Do, do you know the answers to all six of those questions? Actually, because I have a seventh, actually, in my notes, but do you have the answers already? Do you know clearly in your mind what all the answers are? And the thing is, is that in my understanding of church life and of Christians in, in my experience, I think you do, actually. I don't think I'm going to say anything so radically new or different that you haven't heard before, except for one of those questions, and that's actually the central one, what actually is justification. That is going to be the most difficult thing that we're going to get to in the middle, and it's difficult, and so I've made that one actually multiple choice. When we get to that question, I'll give you a multiple choice, and you can tell me what you think that it is, and then I'll be able to tell you that you're wrong and correct you. What the first question is, is why do we need to be justified? And um, let me just ask that out, actually. I would, I would actually, I would like to just do that. Why, when we talk about justified, justification by faith, it is, it is the central tenet of what it means to be a Christian. Why do we need to be justified? Why is it even important? You understand, to the majority of the world around us, justification by faith is not on their map at all. They don't care about justification. It's not important. So the first question that we ask is its relevancy. Why do we need to be justified? And so just a few people just want to throw them out. Why do we need to be justified? I, think, I mean, like, I know the pauses are all here because, well, they're twofold. One is because we all know the answers. And second, it's because you, uh, you don't want to be told that you're wrong. <laughs> so let, so let, me just, let me just coach you on it. It's, it's because we are sinners. It's true. And I, and I know the hesitancy of why that you, you don't want to come forth with that answer. Because then I would ask you, then what does that mean to be a sinner? And I do have something very specific in mind. And so let me, let, me, let me ply open this question. Why do we need to be justified? And yes, it's because we are all sinners. But the common conception among Christians, and I think non-Christians alike, is that what it means that I'm a sinner is that it means that I, I lie at certain times. I have lustful thoughts. 
I make promises I don't keep. I act selfishly. At times I get angry and I act out of that anger. There are hatreds inside of me. I'm a sinner. I do these things of sin. And those are all the symptomatic expressions of what sin is. But when we talk about the fact that we need to be justified, we are talking about the very essence and the core of sin which gives birth and rise to all those sins. Namely, that we are in fundamental misalignment with the universe. All of creation has been created, outspoken by God for His glory. So there is a chorus going out through creation that resounds to His magnificence, His beauty, His splendor. It says that day and night pour forth speech. And yet we alone, as human beings have the capacity to rebel against that knowingly, and we are in fundamental misalignment with that. And so that, though all of creation, every single corner of the universe speaks out, He is God. We are the one part of creation that have reached out in the fall in Genesis. And the lie that we ingested, that we ate actually even physically in the form of an apple, that we took into ourselves was that I can be like God. I can make my own decisions and I can be the center of my own existence. And it is that misalignment by which everything in our life has now gained misproportions and distortions that have come from that fundamental misalignment of our lives. I think about the fact that if we were... We saw some footage over the retreat of Mark Driscoll. He brought a camera crew down to Haiti. And as he was walking around Haiti, there you could see everywhere there's, there's ruin and there's devastation. There is uh, rubble and there is sorrow. And the stench of death and decomposing bodies was, was so accurate in the air that he was wearing a mask. And they, you know, people they couldn't stand just all the, the death and decay that they saw all around. And we look at that from the comfort of our TV sets in America with all that we have in our luxuries and our wealth of medicine and wonderful comforts. And we think that's devastation and and that is ruin. On the other side of the screen, that's all over that country. And the amazing thing of blindness is that if Jesus Christ were incarnated today and he were dropped not into Haiti, but he were dropped into Westchester or Manhattan, New York City today with all of our modern technology and advancements, it would be a similar view through his eyes. Everything that was created for the glory and the beauty of God, everyone to be alive fully in God and Christ Jesus centered upon him and building their lives wrapped around the love and the mercy and goodness of God. And everywhere that Jesus Christ would look that he would see devastation and sorrow. I think if you dropped into Times Square, I don't think that he would be amazed and impressed in all the beauty of the lights and the, the huge technology and the, all the screens and all those things. I think he would be amazed at seeing the radical misproportions of which life has taken, where money, sex, and power is everything, and God is nowhere on the scene. I believe if there was a little church in the midst of Times Square that he would go running to that church, and people saying, where is Jesus, where is Jesus? And Jesus would say, where else would I be but in my Father's house? 
in this one place of peace and refuge, this house of prayer that is people here who are living for God's glory and who love him. And that this little church, let's say it's a church of like 50 or 70, 80 people, and he would say that this church is more important than Wall Street, Empire State Building, and Times Square combined, this little piece of real estate, because in it are people that are properly aligned to the glory of God. I don't speak this as an evangelistic sermon actually this afternoon. I speak this to fellow believers in the wonderment that we ought to have at people around us because they cannot understand why it is that we would want to spend an hour and a half or two hours in a week of weekend time and spend it in church surrounded by fellow believers worshiping God. It is, ought to be an amazing thing that they cannot understand that what we want to do more than anything else is to get to the end of the week so that we can come and give glory and praise to God. That they cannot understand the fullness and the joy of having my life more centered around God as I give praise and worship unto the Lord. You remember that diagram which some of you maybe were won to Christ by in the CCC, the Campus Crusade for Spiritual Laws? And they had that little diagram, and theologians have made have set such a field day on that diagram. It's oh, it's simple, it's overly simplistic. It's you know we need to be more theologically nuanced. All those things are true, but the fundamental reality is that when you you yourself are at the center of your life, in that misalignment, everything else in your life starts to come in and out of view in ways that are so distorted and disproportionate, and life becomes chaotic coming to God in conversion as we have done. It does not mean perfection, but it means that Jesus Christ now takes the center of your life and is now bringing your life into proper alignment as he is the center. And you wonder, how did I live my life in any other way but then with God as center? There is the most natural thing in the world that God should be in the center of my life. Everything seems to take its proper shape and dimension and size once God is placed in the center. And we are reminded of that fact that when we lose our God-centeredness, when we start drifting away from God, things which were not a big deal when we were close to God and God was the center of our life, a worry that was just not that big a deal, that's, that's okay, God will take care of that. All of a sudden we become engulfed by anxieties. Something that which was not that attractive. We thought, well, I want to live for God and to love people and to see people want to Christ. That's what's important. All of a sudden, things of, of the world, then some of the financial things, some little trinket becomes hugely important. And all these things start moving back into proper orbit once the gravitational pull of the Lord takes center place. That is what conversion is. It is that is the reason we need to be justified. It is not for to get rid of this sin or stop you from swearing or stop you from doing something which is somewhat maybe morally uh, suspect. It is a foundational thing which has happened when we're talking about justification. So when we talk about the second question of what is the basis of... I'm going to just answer these questions myself just to save us time. We don't have time anyway. What is the basis of our justification? You could not have picked a more unlikely symbol for Christianity to prosper. We sit here at 2,000 years in the church age. And if you are a marketing expert and you can send the, the crack marketing team from New York City back into the first century and say, we want an easily accessible icon 
by which we can identify our new emerging religion. Brand new. No one's heard of it before. This is going to be their first impression of what this religion is going to be all about. We need an icon. <laughs> like everybody has one. Every corporation in the world has a selling, easily accessible marketing icon. You could not have picked a worse one than the one that was chosen and has endured. We are so used to it, even comfortable with it. Because it is embossed on our Bibles. Many of us are wearing them. But you understand, when these letters are written to these churches, no one had a cross. No one. People were not wearing crosses. They were not imprinting crosses. They did not have cross t-shirts. They did not have crosses around. They did not have it because it was gaining as the symbol which emerged as the, the most important thing of how to explain what I live and die for. This one symbol became the single instrumental icon by which Christianity is understood. Because apart from it, we have no hope or salvation. It is the cross of Christ upon which our Savior died as the most important ground of our justification. It is an amazing thing that this symbol has continued to endure and now it has become the center of our faith. And when we ask this question, the reason why is because we would not be able to be saved. We would not be able to talk about everything we're talking about this afternoon, justification, unless that it would be able to be planted upon something that had occurred in history. And so I just want to link this sermon with the last time. This was about maybe a year or so, a year ago, when I, last time I hit these, chap, uh, these, these verses in Romans 3. The last sermon that I preached on Romans 3, these, actually these very verses, was called, For God So Loves the World. And the reason, I just want to use that as a springboard because we, that, that was the emphasis then and we're going to switch emphasis. But the emphasis then, if you, if you remember, I ask you to learn and understand the concept that these few concepts, which are absolutely essential for you to understand as Christians, and that concept was called substitutionary atonement. We're not going to talk about that much today because we talked about it then. It is the basis upon which we are justified. And a substitutionary atonement is what we just sang about in some of our hymns and songs. It is the reason why the cross is so precious to us. And between God and man, I needed help. And there needed to be a mediator who would interpose himself as a bridge between sinful man and holy God. Who, who would do that? Maybe somebody would give himself for a righteous man, but who would come in such love and grace and mercy and die for a sinner like me and become the human bridge by sacrifice by which I am joined to a holy God and bring heaven to earth and earth to heaven? Who could and would do such a thing? And if you recall that sermon, I said that this person must be exactly like me or he cannot die in my place. And he must be utterly unlike me without sin or else he could, must only die for his own. If he's going to be an offering for my sin, he must be utterly holy, utterly divine. But if he's going to die for my sin as a substitute, he must be utterly like me as a man. Who in the universe fills this job description? And the reason why we are Christians is because I do not know the foundations or the, the, all the tenets of all the religions of the world. All I know is one thing. Only in Christianity is Christ and his cross central. Only in Christianity is Christ and the substitutionary atoning sacrifice of Jesus made known. Which is why we say that there is no name under heaven by which people can be saved but Jesus Christ. It is why we are Christians. So Jesus Christ 
in his substitutionary atonement, his dying in my place forms the merciful ground upon which justification can occur and take place. So when we say, and we'll take up a little bit of speed here, we need to be justified because we are sinners. We are fundamentally in misalignment with God. The basis by which we can have our justification, by which makes justification possible, which makes our entire lives possible, is the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Let me just read those verses for us in Romans 3 as we look into the text. For all have sinned, and this is the famous verse in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you understand, everything we're just saying has been an explanation of that one verse. Sinning is not lying, killing, uh, betrayal. Sinning at heart is a falling short of the glory of God in all of His centeredness in the entire universe. And are justified freely by His grace to the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. So these are the first these are the answers to the first questions. And so when we ask whose work is justification? Who can do justification? This is something that I am so jealous that every single person here would know clearly. Justification is God's work and not yours. It is not for you to say if I do this, if I fulfill these set of rules, if I avoid these major sins, I can be justified with God. It is God's work, and we know that when he says when these verses say being justified, that's in a passive understanding. I am being justified. I justification is something that is done to me. It is not something that I enact. Romans eight thirty three, which we're going to get to in a little while, declares it. I cannot shout it with the vigor and the vehemence which Paul would have said, it is God who justifies. My brothers and my sisters, I would ask that there would be a cessation of striving, a ceasing of saying, what can I do to please God? What must I do so that God would love me? What must I do? And what, How much can, should I pray to get God on my side? God cannot be any more on your side than he is in the cross of Christ. He cannot be. There is, you cannot get God any more on your side than he already is in Christ Jesus. God has justified you. It is God's work. It is not yours. It is a much bigger thing than we can possibly pull off in our own. So when we ask this question in number three, whose work is justification, we want to say that clearly. It is God's work. And if you are doing evangelism, which is part of the application of the sermon, never say with your mouth anything that would give the hint that if you do such and such and such and things, then you can be saved. You must not. You must not also put people by your attitudes or, or try not to, by the way that you are with somebody, that I say that, that this is something that must be earned by God, before God, that you have to do these things and fulfill these criteria. We must do our best, and I'm saying we, myself, together, we must do our best to show people the kind of acceptance exactly as they are so that they would know in no uncertain terms that we are accepted without one iota of change. Wherever we are, that God comes and justifies us. 
That goes for the person who just has cheated on his income taxes, the person who just cheated on his wife, the person who has just killed somebody. The same ground of grace is made available because it is God's work and not ours. So then the fourth, this is the tricky question. I give it to you as a tricky This number four is the entire reason why I'm preaching this sermon, just to let you know. So this is the one part that if you've been uh, nodding off a little bit, just wake up, just for this. If you feel like that, my attention is kind of going this way, and I'm, I'm thinking about the Super Bowl or whatever, or just what's going on, please focus and let me have a word with you on what actually is justification. So let me ask that question. I'm going to answer it, don't worry. But let me, let me give you the multiple choice here. Is justification an attainment? Is it something that I get to eventually? Or is justification an alignment? And this, you will not find this language actually anywhere else. It is something that's in my own time before the Lord. This is my own language. And so, but I give it to you. I share it with you, share it with you as something I pray that would be helpful to you all. If you have been coming from a, a Catholic background, I, let me please speak with you. You know how much I love, admire our Catholic brothers and sisters. You much how I treasure their faith and their devotion. And the amazing amount of agreement that we have in so many major doctrines. And here is the one place where if you've been raised in a Catholic home, that in your psychology you might need to readjust. And it is simply this. What Catholicism obscures in its core doctrines and theology is that it gives an indication pretty strongly that justification is an attainment. It is something to be strived for through grace, but something which you are strived, and that's the thing, that's where we agree. It is by grace. I don't want to make a caricature of the Catholic faith. They believe it is by faith through grace, but they believe that justification is something which occurs over your life, over time, and if it has not been attained in your life, then after your life, and a very, very few proportion of those who are Catholic can ever attain that with certitude, I am justified. And those are those rarefied group of people called saints. And these people alone can stand justified. But for everyone else, it is a lifelong trying to, by grace, by faith, through grace, trying to be justified. It is an attainment. And biblically, I must correct that, please. Biblically, justification is not an attainment, it is an alignment. It is a confusion between two things which we must have clear in our minds, which is the difference between justification and sanctification. Sanctification is that process by which you become more like God, become more holy, become more renewed, look more like Jesus, gain success over your different struggles with sin. That is sanctification. It is a progression. Justification is a position. Sanctification is a process. Justification is a point. It is a once and for all, one point in time when you are converted, a declaration over your life that says this person is justified. 
It is so critical that you get this point clear in your Christian development or else the rest of your life is walking in a tentativity. Every step forward in my faith then becomes a tentative step of, am I, I don't know if I'm completely right with God and, you know, if, if I do this and then if I have had my quiet times and if I've gone faithfully to church and I feel I feel I am right with God, but those times which maybe I have drifted away or have not gone to church or I am found in some kind of sin, then I am somehow less justified and less right with God. And we can live our life in this kind of insecurity until God arrests us and declares emphatically, you are justified. That is what occurs at conversion. It is a one-point singular event. It is walked out over your life, over a lifetime, everything that means. But the beginning of it, at the very first point of your faith, of your salvation, it justification is a one-point event. And I just want to show that to you because of its importance. If you just want to turn with me just briefly in Romans 8. And in these famous verses... I just want to pick it up from Romans 8.31. And Paul, because of his desire to have clarity, speaks to this, this topic in an almost in an argumentative, in a lawyerly fashion. He wants so much for us to be clear. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up, for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. In Paul's mind, what he is making in this amazing kind of contrast is that there are people who are making a charge against you it can be people, it could be demonic, but there is a charge against you. You are a sinner, you are condemned, and God brings a charge for you that says, justify. There is a charge against you, and there is a charge for you that says, justified. It is a once and for all declaration by which you are brought into alignment with God. You walk it out as a progressive attainment. But justification is a once and for all settled matter. We're going to move quickly through, the, through our remaining verses because we're going to end this message in communion. And I mean for us to prepare for that communion. There are so many things that we use communion for. We take that centrality of Christ's work in our lives and we apply that into very different things in, the, in our sharing of communion. But there's one thing that I'm asking you to do every single time we take communion. To, to ingest and to receive into yourself that reminder that the question of my right standing before God has been forever settled. I do not have to come before God with tentativity, with uncertainty. That when I stand before the Lord, that I've been completely clothed in Christ Jesus the aspect of my life which I'm living out is something that's already been planted inside of me. When, we, when, when theologians talk about in this way, all of the things of sanctification, all of our growth in Christ, all the things that we exhibit and express, those are fruits. But those are fruits, all of our good works and the good things that we do in our lives that testify that there has been a deeper root that has been given to our life. 
That root is justification, not the fruit. That is something that we must be clear on. And so let me, let me close these in the way that Paul himself closes it. Let me pick it up back from verse 23 and say, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. And I want to just tackle these remaining questions quickly as we go through these things and these verses. And are justified freely by His grace through redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And that answers the question five. How much does it cost to be justified? And there is nothing that you could ever pay in order to gain justification. Those, that verse that says, in those words, freely, by His grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So justification either comes at the price of Christ Jesus' life or not at all. There is no middle ground available in Scripture to say that some of my sins are covered by Christ and I would take some of them that I could work off by myself. I would somehow try to make up for it. All of that kind of equations and numerical accounting is obliterated in the cross of Christ. Redemption in Christ Jesus, our justification, comes at the price of Jesus' life completely. It is free, freely, by His grace, through redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And the last question is, by what means do I gain justification? And we've, Paul is of a line in everything that we've been talking about. There, there's so much inside of us that wants to be like the elder brother, especially if we've grown up in, in church all of our lives. And if, if you remember the elder brother um, in, in the prodigal son story, when the prodigal son came home and the elder brother, it's just, you, you know, I mean, I know we're always scandalized by this language, by when Christians, you know, say this, that, you know, that heaven, the, the, that heaven is like a party. And, if, and, and I think I don't think every Christian is scandalized by it, but Christians like me who who when, when I hear party I think sin. I mean that's you know it's because of, that's my that's my background, and, and and yet they are not wrong. That the prodigal son came home, and he spoke that one word which released grace and blessing onto onto his head. It was not the words of I'm going to do all these things to make up for all the way that I wasted all your money and broke your heart. The, the prodigal son stumbles home and the one word that releases blessing into his life and justifies him before, the, before this man is when he stumbles before God in, you know, parabolically in the story. And this prodigal, prodigal son comes to him and says, Father, Father, after all this time, I forgot. I see you. You're my father. I'm your son. I don't have any other reason by which I would be welcomed back to your home. I can't bring with me credentials and all the things that I've done and all the success and achievements. Say, we do, have I have your approval now because of all the things I've done? I got nothing. You're my father. Will you, you take me in? There's grace and a wide open, not only just a wide open place at the, at the table at home, but a banquet thrown in his honor. And then there's the bean counter. And the elder son who comes over and says, you know, (laughs) what in the world are you doing? You know, I've worked for you all my life and you never gave me anything. And that spirit 
is in some place in all of us that we feel like we have to earn, that we have to do something. You know, I mean, it's a, you know, when I was a, when I was really young, actually, somebody very, very close to me said something to me which just took me by surprise and just stunned me. And the person wanted a favor from me. And what the person said, the person prefaced getting that favor from me with these words. Remember when I did these things for you? Remember that? Well, because of that, I'm asking you for this now. And you, and you owe me this because of what I've done. And it stunned me because I was thinking, all you had to do was ask. All you had to do was ask. I would have given it to you as, as a gift. But there is something inside of us that wants to remain in control, to put other people, even God, in our debt, by which we can say, here are the things that I have done, and so I'm in control, and, this, and therefore I have secured my own salvation. And it is a horrible elder spirit that exists in us. Our own accounting before God, and the inability to just simply lay before God and accept the free gift of grace of salvation. And the most amazing blessing in the prodigal son story, one of the most amazing revelations I've ever found, is I reread that story again and again, and with the help of some pretty heavy hitters, exegetically, uh, Bible scholar people, I came to see something clearly in that text, which I never saw before. That prodigal son story, it's not aimed at the prodigal son. Jesus is speaking that to the Pharisees. He's speaking that for the elder sons. He's taking the prodigal son as an example to the elder son as saying, hey, elder son, I love you. You stop having, you don't have to work. See, here's this example of even if you were like this one that did nothing, I would just accept you and give you grace. The father in that story doesn't only go out to the prodigal son. He goes out to all the elder sons and elder daughters and says, the time of striving is over. The question of your acceptance has been settled. It's over. Everything you do from here on in is by grace, not to earn anything. Rest secure in your salvation and in that freedom, and then you can you get to explore what righteousness means. Not as a means of earning a place before God, which you cannot, but as a means of expressing your joy at being now properly aligned with God as a gift that has been now deposited into your life. This is so central and so important for you to understand. Next week, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about sanctification proper and what it means to live and walk this out. But every single branch that I'm going to take out from, from there in order to uh, allow us to bear the fruits of sanctification, all those come back to a common stream, which is our justification by faith, which is our one point in time, settled matter that we have been accepted by God. That is the part that we must have clear in our minds. I want to uh, prepare us now for communion, which is the close of, of this service now. And in your own hearts and in, in your own minds, it is difficult, I think, for so many of us adults it's difficult as much as we want to to receive something 
And that is what this table is all about. It's what this table is. It's, it is a gift, freely, given to you by Christ. And it is something that you receive, and something that you ingest, something that you take inside of yourself. And it is, when you take of this communion table, the forgiveness of Christ Jesus, do you understand that what you're doing, it is the exact counterposition of what Adam did. Adam took of a fruit that said, I can be like God, and he ate it, and it became part of him. In the bread and in the wine, the, the juice that we're going to take, it is saying exactly the opposite. I cannot do it. And I cannot live this life without God. I'm taking this blood and this body as the center of my existence. I'm ingesting it down to the core of my being that I have been made right now with God in Jesus is the center of my existence. And everything I live, I want to live out from that one point. Would you come and pray? And just, you can just, I mean, just pray where you are and come before the Lord. about the elements in a moment but usually uh, I think what I would I would ask during this time of uh, preparation for communion is that you would think of specific sins that in your life that which you want to have cleansed and that is a fine way a thoroughly appropriate way in which communion is conducted but today I would like to ask a little something a little bit differently I'd like to ask you to take this communion as a reinvestiture of your conversion. Of not that you're getting saved again. That's again from everything I'm saying it's not it's not possible. But it would be a reminder that I am saved. The matter of my enmity between God is over. He is my peace. He's my mediator. His work is complete and his grace sufficient. I'm saved. I'm a Christian by grace. I am thoroughly and completely related to God as a son, as a daughter. And my relationship is not built in the slightest ounce or inch by my behavior or my performance as a Christian, but upon what Jesus Christ has done for me on the cross. Would you bring yourself to that place in your souls? and prepare a place within you in order to receive and take this communion. And you understand that when you take this communion, it's going to go with you. It's ingested into you. It's part of your being. I'm pray over the elements now and, and say, Father, such simple things which you have used and desired to bring about the means by reminding us of the greatest, most important truths of the universe. And so we look at these simple elements, this bread and this juice, and we ask that by your divine supernatural investiture of your Holy Spirit, that you would so use these elements unto our souls as to be your broken body and as to be your shed blood, that we may be reminded at by what cost and what by what price that we have been saved and how utterly incapable that we are to add to that how utterly incapable we are of contributing to that salvation. But rather, all we can do is by faith rest to be at peace that we have been saved by grace to the uttermost. 
Jesus. God, would you give us that freedom, that liberty, if we pray over these elements now in your name. You can remain in prayer or in worship as these elements are passed out. I'm going to ask, as we pass out these elements and you can pass them to each other, would you please hold both parts, both the, the juice and the bread, and then we'll take them together. I'll lead us out together in color. Lord Jesus, these elements which we have taken, which are now to us invisible, and which are now, even by processes we don't fully understand, are being metabolized into our system. Would you invisibly, even supernaturally, allow it to work within the deepest parts of our soul like leaven, and would be lifting and filling our lives with grace. That Jesus, that it would be setting us free, God, Allowing us to just enjoy the goodness of what it means to be a son, a daughter of the God, our King, our Savior, and our friend. To enjoy relationship with you. Enjoy righteousness. Enjoy purity, Father. Enjoy truthfulness and faithfulness. God, you've opened a door. And Romans 5, you say that we stand, God, in grace. It's a place of standing. You've given us access through your Son. And we stand in that freedom, secure, and in places of rest. And it is this rest that I pray over all my brothers and sisters here, in the peace of the Prince of Peace, in the shalom of Jesus Christ. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.